This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Of 2 Samuel, it's going to be important for you to have God's Word to look at and study. Today we're continuing our series on Samuel by starting the book of 2 Samuel. We don't need a large introduction to 2 Samuel because it picks up right where 1 Samuel left off. It begins with the transition of power from King Saul to King David. This week, as I'm sure everyone is aware, we had midterm elections. As always throughout the process, there was uh, disagreements, division, accusations, vilifying opponents. I always find it amusing to look at the pictures they put on commercials and mailers of their opponents. They always find a picture of them snarling or mid-sneeze somehow and put it on the mailer. It's amazing though, after an election like this, when you watch all the, the animosity and the disagreements, even in the midst of disagreement, one of the hallmarks of our nation is the peaceful transfer of power. Two years ago, as President Obama was shocked by the win of Trump to president, he held a press conference and he said this. He said, now it's no secret that the president-elect and I have some pretty significant differences, Obama said. But remember, eight years ago, President Bush and I had some pretty significant differences. But President Bush's team could not have been more professional or more gracious in making sure we had a smooth transition so that we could hit the ground running. The peaceful transition of power is one of the hallmarks of our democracy, Obama added, insisting that come January, we are going to show that to the world. It's really a rare historic achievement. In most nations throughout history of the world, power was fought for or taken by force. It was grasped tightly and only relinquished when someone pried it from your hands. Power has rarely been handed over from one person to the next voluntarily. And yet in our government, uh, senators and representatives and governors will have all the full powers of their office one day, and the next day they will let it go and give it to someone else. Maybe not always joyce, joyfully, but peacefully. In the first six chapters of 2 Samuel, we encounter the transfer of power of the throne from King Saul to King David. And unfortunately, this will not be a peaceful transfer of power. You would think that since God Himself chose David and rejected Saul, that the people would recognize the hand of God and rally behind David. But that is not the case. Because we're going to see, because of Selfish ambition and pride, political maneuvering, deception and flattery because of sin, it becomes a battle. And we don't have time this morning to read all six chapters we're going to look at this morning of 2 Samuel. So let me give you a little overview before we dive in. So I just want to kind of give you the lay of the land of the text and then we're going to go to some specific moments to see how this speaks to us today and how we can apply it to our lives. So, 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul. 2 Samuel begins 
with the same account, but this is now the news coming to David. So, so we're moving into the second stage of the Israelite monarchy. This is the era of King David. And so 2 Samuel begins with this news coming to King David. This young scavenger comes to David and tells him Saul is dead, but he adds a detail we don't find in 1 Samuel because it's not true. He says that he's the one who killed Saul, thinking David is going to reward him. Turns out David punishes him and has him executed. And then David calls all the people of Israel to mourn Saul and Jonathan's death. In chapter 2, Abner, who was Saul's general, comes along and he raises up Saul's son, Ishbosheth, to be the king of Israel. And we find this division where the people are divided and civil war breaks out. And David's soldiers begin fighting Abner's soldiers and the civil war breaks out. Abner, this is where you got to hang with me. I'm trying to give you the lay of the land. Abner kills Joab's brother, who is King David's general. So Abner's on one side, Joab's on the other. Abner kills Joab's brother. Joab ends up killing Abner. Ishbosheth, the, the self-declared king of Israel, ends up being murdered by two of his soldiers who come to King David with his head, saying, we killed your opponent, your enemy, expecting to be rewarded again, and again, King David's not pleased with them and he has them executed. So finally, in chapters 5 and 6, David is finally crowned the king of all Israel. And in chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem. Needless to say, it is not a peaceful transfer of power. But there is this thread that we can trace throughout this story this morning we're going to look at. And this is the thread I think we will find. This is the main point of our text. It's that God's promised Christ will reign and it will bring blessing to God's people. Through all this backstabbing, all the schemes of men cannot stop God's purposes. God is relentless. And God's promised Christ will reign. He will be on the throne and it will bring blessing to God's people. Or in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, God would love His children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. You cannot stop God's purposes. And so to see God's relentless pursuit of His promises, we first need to see this. Just point number one is people reject God's rule. This keeps happening. People reject God's rule. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. 2 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 3. This is what God's Word says to us today. It says, And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Drop down to verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. 
And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he, began, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. So immediately after Saul dies, and it seems common knowledge that David has been chosen by God as king, there is opposition. People continually reject God's rule. This is a theme we find throughout the Scriptures. It begins in the Garden of Eden. It continues throughout the Old Testament. It continues into the New Testament as people reject Christ and it resides in our sinful hearts as well. Remember in 1 Samuel 8 when the people were not content with God as their king. They wanted to have a king like the other nations. They were rejecting God as their king. And now in 2 Samuel chapter 2, Abner is not content with David as God's choice of king, and so he sets up his own kingdom. And so we see Judah is following King David. Judah's in the south of Israel, and the rest of Israel is following Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And if you look at the map, if you go to the ESV study Bible and you look at a map, you'll see that, that David's territory, Judah, is much smaller than the rest of Israel. He has less troops, less resources. The deck is stacked against him once again. And it's obvious as we get into the story that Abner is selfishly motivated. He is selfishly ambitious. Abner didn't want to hand over power to David. He didn't want David's commander, Joab, to lead the armor. The army, Abner has been leading the army. He doesn't want to hand over power. And so he goes to Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and he makes him king. And basically, what the story says is he is a puppet king. It's really Abner who has the power. And he begins to fight against David's commander, Joab. And Abner doesn't realize that he's not just fighting against David and Joab, Abner is fighting against God. And this is a battle he cannot win. God has said, this is going to be my king. This is who I've chosen as king. And Abner, because of his selfish ambition, is fighting against God. Flip over to chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. Look at verse 1 with me. 2 Samuel 3, 1. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So David, even with the deck stacked against him, continues to grow. Saul's house is being humbled. They are being stripped of their power. Abner is fighting against that. And in chapter 3, Abner is trying to gain more power. And so it says that he takes one of Saul's concubines, which was a way for him to try to gain power to the throne of Israel. Now, Ishbosheth, even though he's afraid of Abner, calls him out on it and he offends Abner. And this is where there is this bizarre twist in the story where Abner, who is opposed to David and sets up this opposing kingdom to David, 
goes and joins King David, and he begins to flatter him. Now, when you read this, you have to understand this is not an act of humility by Abner. It's a pro-Abner move. It's all about self-preservation. We've all seen the movies where you have this Weasley guy, and wherever there's power, wherever he can survive, that's where he goes, and that's Abner. He sees what this verse says, that the, the house of Saul is sinking, and so he jumps ship, grabs a lifeboat, and he runs to David. And he betrays Ishbosheth and flatters David, and David receives him. Now, here's the problem with this Abner killed Joab's brother. Joab is not happy about this, so Joab goes behind David's back and kills Abner. And if you feel like this is a soap opera, it, it is. Welcome to Days of Our Lives, Israel edition. Just you know, brothers and revenge and animosity. And what we see is they're just rejecting God's rule. They are fighting against God. And throughout this story, it's very grieving. It's meant to be that way. It doesn't hide the details and the violence. It's meant to be grieving and sad. Because that's the effect of sin and selfish ambition. It creates this civil war among God's people where God's people are supposed to be coming together and united and they are divided because of selfishly ambitious men. And it's meant to grieve us because they reject God's rule. And there's a message here for us. It's not just a story meant to entertain us with violence. It, there's a message here for us. Listen to Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary. He says, Abner is not far from any one of us. We share an Abner nature that harbors sin, stupidity, perversity, and twistedness. Let Abner preach to you. I love that. Let him preach to you. Read the story and let Abner preached to you about selfish ambition and rejecting God's king. God is providing a king to bless them. They are fighting against God. And we see this in the New Testament as well, don't we? Where God provides Jesus and the Jews are fighting and scheming and they're resisting. And you look at Jesus and you think he, He's healing people and He's feeding them and He's teaching them God's Word. Why would you resist that where they're rejecting God's rule? They're selfishly ambitious. They can't hand over power to God. Selfishly ambitious people can't receive God's King because they can't humble themselves. That nature to resist God and to try to do it ourselves is inside of us as well. And it takes God's Spirit to humble us and soften our hearts to receive His King and to follow Him. To learn. It's better to be a servant of Christ than the ruler of my own little kingdom over here. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's learn from Abner and be blessed by following God's King. Look at the damage this selfish ambition does to the people of God. Now, there's, a, there's another side throughout this whole story. Okay, People reject God's role, but what's important throughout this story is that David, God's 
Christ, the one that God has anointed, it submits to God's rule, and he doesn't grasp for the crown. Point number two, God's Christ submits to God's rule. Okay, throughout this story, David is God's Christ, little c. He's God's Christ. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. And so David is the anointed one. He's the one God has called. God has chosen. He's been anointed by Samuel. He's God's Christ to Israel. It's very important through this narrative that David does not claim the throne through murdering Saul. He doesn't take things into his own hands, but he submits himself to the sovereign will and timing of God. And you'll see this. If you read through these chapters, you'll see this over and over. Remember last week, where he had these opportunities to kill Saul, and he didn't. He used restraint. In chapter 1 of our text, he doesn't uh, reward the man who claimed to kill Saul. He punishes him. He doesn't celebrate Saul's death. He mourns it. He calls the people to mourn. He isn't involved in Abner's murder, but he's, he's angry at Joab for murdering him, even though he opposed him. And in chapter 4, when Ishbosheth, his rival king, is murdered, he doesn't celebrate or reward the men, but he punishes them. Okay, this, this is very important throughout the story. Look at chapter 4 with me. We're just going to continue through this narrative. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. This is the men who murder Ishbosheth. It says, When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death, and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, listen to what they say, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. They're saying, God did this. God did this for you. But David answered, Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Remen, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? David says, I want no part in claiming this throne through any evil means. You think you're bringing me good news that God's king is dead? You are wrong. He refuses over and over and over to grasp the crown. People keep coming to him saying, why don't you kill Saul? And he refuses. And Saul is dead. Why aren't you rejoicing? And he mourns. Your enemy rival who has been the fake king of Israel, though God said it was you, is now dead. You should rejoice. He says, I will not rejoice. This is not the Lord. This is not the way the Lord does this. And he entrusts himself 
into the sovereign will and timing of God. And through David, God's Christ, we see glimpses of Jesus Christ, don't we? The ultimate Christ. David is a type. He's a pointer forward to the Jesus of Nazareth who also entrusts Himself to the sovereign will of God, who refuses to take the throne by violence or force or ambition, but prays to God, not My will, but Yours be done, O Lord. Remember when Jesus began His ministry and He was baptized and He was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And there's three scenes, and in one of the scenes, Satan takes Him up and shows Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And Satan says to Jesus, I will give all this authority and their glory. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. It was an offer to bypass God's will and God's timing, to, to bypass the cross and suffering. And Jesus says to Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And in Philippians 2, 6-7, through what does it say about the King of kings and Lord of lords? It says, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. God's Christ doesn't have to scheme and grasp for power. David didn't grasp for power. Christ didn't grasp for power. They submitted themselves to the sovereign will of God because God's Christ will have the throne. God will do this. They don't have to grasp and, and, and manipulate and strive for the throne. God will bring it to pass. And the good news for us today as we study this is we have a Savior who is on the throne. And we are part of His kingdom. In Christ, we have received a kingdom. We are part of it. He is our King. His kingdom is eternal. And we don't have to strive or grasp for power or for position for our meaning. Our value does not come from what we have the job title we have or want, the power we have over others. Our value comes from being in Jesus, our King, of being His people. This is the glorious thing about the Gospel. As we don't rest in our achievements or our performance or our successes or our failures, we rest in the finished work of Christ. That is our hope. It sets us free from selfish ambition and pride, from finding our identity or power or success. And so you have these two pictures in this text of Abner who's claiming power and manipulating and flattering and striving. And you have David, God's Christ, who is submitting Himself to the sovereign will of God. That's the kingdom we're invited into. D.A. Carson wrote a book about his dad, Tom Carson, who was a pastor in Canada. And the name of the book is Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And I've read this before, but it's one of the things I think I keep going back to and we should go back to every couple of years. Listen as he describes his dad. He says, Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people in the Udawa and beyond testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, 
but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was never a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not very good at putting people down except on his prayer list. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in parliament, no attention paid by the nation. And in his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But, but, on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the kingdom that we are invited into in Jesus Christ. It has different values than what this world values. It doesn't value power and authority and striving. It values serving and love. And we see that in David and we see that in Christ. And it's what we are called into. David doesn't grasp for the crown. But finally... After this civil war breaks out and selfishly ambitious men wreak havoc on Israel, finally, in chapter 5, David is crowned king because God is relentless and His promises will always come to pass. Point number three, with God's Christ comes God's presence. This is meant to bless God's people. God's king on God's throne is meant to bless God's people. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. A historic moment here. 2 Samuel 5, it says this, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Look at verse 12. Drop down in verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Have you ever driven down the highway and seen those historical markers on the side of the road? In the margin of our Bible, right here should be a historical marker because this is the first time in God's Word where we see God's King ruling over all of God's people. And it took 20 chapters for us to get here. 
It was 1 Samuel 16 when, when Samuel anointed David as king. And sometimes David doubted if it would ever happen. But finally, in 2 Samuel 5, David is crowned king of Israel. He's waited 20 years for this moment. 20 years has gone by. He waited on the Lord. He didn't grasp for the crown. God fulfilled His promises. And the emphasis here is all of God's people, all of Israel, are now together with their king in God's place. It says that in verse 1, all of Israel. In verse 3, all the elders of Israel. Verse 5, he reigned over all Israel. And in verse 12, David knew God did this. And he did it for the sake of his people. David knew God did this because David didn't grasp for power. The Lord was going to have to establish him. And God always keeps His Word. And so what we find here is for the first time, we are in God's place. They're going to capture Jerusalem. God's King is over all of God's people. And now it's time for God's presence to come back and to bless His people. Look at chapter 6. This is where we're going to finish this morning. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So the king is on the throne over all Israel. They're in Jerusalem. All the people are gathered together. Everything is coming together. God is faithful to His Word. In chapter 6, it says, verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who are with him from Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Remember, in 1 Samuel 4, when the Philistines defeated the Israelites and they carried the ark of the covenant into the temple of Dagon. And they recovered the ark because God brought it back to them, but they weren't sure what to do with it. Now, when we get to 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant has been sitting there for 70 years. And now finally, with God's King on the throne, it's time to bring the Ark back. The Ark is the symbol of God's presence. God's King is on the throne in Jerusalem. All the people are there. It's time to bring God's presence back into the midst of the people. And in chapter 6, this is God's victory parade. It says that there's, there's dancing and singing and tambourines and people are shouting. So just, just picture this. 30,000 of them travel from Jerusalem. David is leading them. He's the king on the throne over all Israel. And they have tambourines and singing and dancing and floats if they had those back then. It's a parade for God coming back. And they're traveling along the road. Just picture this. And they're singing and dancing and shouting and worshiping God. And the Ark of the Covenant is there. It's on a cart carried by these oxen. Everybody is rejoicing. And then all of a sudden, one of the oxen stumbles. And the cart jolts. And Uzzah, who is over carrying the Ark and watching it, as the Ark begins to tumble sideways because this cart begins to move, he reaches out his hand and he stops the ark from falling. And immediately it says that God kills him in his anger. 
And I'm thinking, if, if this scene is right, I'm thinking it took a moment for the 30,000 who are singing and dancing and rejoicing to realize what happened. It happened so suddenly, it just they're walking along, it stumbles, and then oozes on the floor, dead on the ground. And I'm sure the music stops, and there's wonder, what happened? How did this happen? Why did God do this? And if you look down in verse 7, it says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark in verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And disaster strikes. What happened? Why did this happen? If you remember the ark in Numbers 24, God gave very specific instructions for how the ark was to be carried. And there were certain rules about the Ark of the Covenant. It was pretty simple. No touch, no look, no cart. Basic rules there. Don't touch it, don't look at it, don't put it on a cart. And here it is, uncovered, on a cart, being transported. And Uzzah touches it, and it goes against God's rules. And David, it says, becomes afraid in verse 9. Look down at verse 9. It says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's a very good question. Everything is falling into place. It's God's king on God's throne with God's people in God's place. They're waiting for God's presence and disaster strikes. And David begins to say, how can the Lord come to me? How can this happen? It's a great question. Tim Chester says this. He says, God is so holy that sin is burned up in His presence and we're soaked in sin. We're like a ragdoll soaked in the flammable liquid of our sin and God is a raging fire. If God comes to us, then we'll be consumed by the holy fire of His presence. You might remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis portrays Aslan as this lion. And early in the book, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver describe him to the children. Mrs. Beaver says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So the children ask whether he is safe. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. That's what we find in 2 Samuel 6. David is learning God is dangerous. He's not safe. He is holy. He is three times holy. If you're going to be God's king on God's throne and God's holy presence is going to come to you, He is dangerous. But He's also good. He's holy, but He's merciful. And David as God's king must do things the way God says to do them. So this is what he does. David doesn't know what to do. He pulls away from the ark and he puts it in the house of Obed-Edom. And for three months, the ark is sitting there in his house. And I don't know how they discover this. It doesn't give us details, but it says over three months, Obed-Edom is blessed by God's presence. He is blessed by God's presence. And word comes to David, listen, He's in the presence of the ark and he's being blessed. And so David goes back. 
Except this time he does things differently in verses 10 through 13. Instead of putting the ark on a cart, which God forbids, it's, it's designed with these gold ringlets for poles to go through. So David puts poles through and he has the men carry the ark the way God designed it to be. And it says after six steps, David sacrificed to the Lord. David's finally getting the message, God is holy. He has a holy presence. And if we're going to come into God's holy presence, we must come with sacrifice, with our sins forgiven. Our sins are like liquid sin. God is a raging fire. And so David sacrifices to the Lord. And God accepts his sacrifice. And he brings the ark into the city of Jerusalem. God's presence is with them. God's King is doing it God's way. He's on God's throne in God's city with God's people. And the, the, the result is this outbreak of joy and dancing. This is how things are supposed to be. God's King in God's city with God's people and God's presence. This is the goal of our lives. This is where we are heading for all eternity to be with all of God's people in God's place, with God's King, in God's presence for all time. And the result in 2 Samuel 6, after the civil war and all the selfish ambition and Uzzah dying, finally God's presence is with them and the result is this joy and dancing breaks out. It says, David danced before the Lord and I've been asked several times to demonstrate. I won't demonstrate for you this morning. But you may ask, thank you, what is up with this naked dancing scene? That's a, what are you going to do with this na naked dancing scene? What's going on here? Is David is so overwhelmed by God's presence. And his wife calls him out and says, you are a king. You should have some dignity and honor. You should act like a king. And what David says is, oh, I don't care about my glory. I don't care about my dignity. I don't care about my worth. God's presence is here. I care about God's glory. God is with us. Who cares what people think? There is joy and gladness and dancing because God is here with us. C.S. Lewis famously said that in, when we're in God's presence, either we forget about ourselves or we feel like a small, dirty object. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it's much better to forget about ourselves. It's exactly what David does. All is well. Everything is as it should be. And David forgets about himself. He's just overflowing with joy because he's in the presence of God. He's God's King in God's place with God's people, with God's presence, and it brings joy. So in 2 Samuel 1-6, through we get a glimpse of what all history is pointing towards. All of our history, all of our lives are heading to God's place where God's King, Jesus Christ, will be on the throne. All God's people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all God's people will be gathered around Him and God's presence will be like the sun shining down upon us. And the effect on my soul and your soul is there will be overflowing joy. And I'm pretty sure on that day we are going to forget about ourselves. This text is a historical 
marker that points us forward to that day. God's promised Christ will reign and it will bring blessing to you. You will be filled with joy. Let's pray. Father, we need Your joy this morning. We want to forget about ourselves. We don't want to be selfishly ambitious. And so I pray, Spirit of God, that You would come, fill us with joy, that we now have access to the only throne room that matters, where the holy, holy, holy God sits on His throne, and we are invited in because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, we get to bask in Your presence and it will bring us joy. It will bring us blessing. And I pray today that every person in this room would experience some of that joy right now. That in their souls, they would be encouraged and they would see, this is where I'm going. And though the, the road is long and difficult, that is where I am heading for all eternity. Oh, what joy to be in the family of God with God's presence. Bring us some of that joy this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.